0: anxiety just pops up out of the blue we have no idea where it came from a lot of people get stuck in like why am i anxious now i shouldn't be anxious I'm, i'm living a good life but the anxiety just shows up you know it doesn't matter how healthy someone is how much money they have how much power they have how great of a you know personal or social life they have they can still be anxious often the cause of anxiety is unclear The good news is it doesn't matter why somebody's anxious. People who've had a a traumatic childhood or or a rough upbringing or something like that, those can be contributing factors, but the past is not the present. Even if something in the past has set up the conditions for us to be anxious, we can't change the past. And so if we focus on trying to figure out what it was in our past that caused this, we're actually wasting our energy because we could be devoting that energy to working
1: in the present moment with the anxiety itself. Could it be that paying attention, something we seem to be getting worse and worse at, is the answer to curbing anxiety and breaking destructive habits? This is the question that I engage with alongside our esteemed guest, Professor Judson Brewer, a luminary in the fields of psychiatry, neuroscience, and mindfulness as well as the author of three incredible books, The Hunger Habit, Unwinding Anxiety, and The Craving Mind, which he wrote with one of my favorite mindfulness teachers, Jon Kabat-Zinn. This was one of those conversations where I looked up and bam, 90 minutes had flown past, totally captivated by everything from start to finish. Not only is Jud extremely well qualified and a wealth of knowledge, but he also excels in making complex areas of neuroscience both accessible and actionable. Enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to InsightTracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's for if you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company With a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega 3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Super interested in talking with you today about all things anxiety, destructive habits, how we can build new habits, particularly how we can build better food habits within uh, an environment that makes it very difficult to avoid overeating. Before we define a few of the key terms that are going to come up today, I'd love to start with a little bit about your backstory and journey into psychiatry and neuroscience. I believe all of this began with your own personal experience with meditation.
0: It did, which actually began with my own personal experience of anxiety. (laughs) So, you know, at the end of of university, I was pretty stressed out. I was actually so anxious that I didn't know I was anxious. Uh, And I had developed what's called irritable bowel syndrome. And One of the big drivers for that for a lot of people is stress and anxiety. And I (laughs) remember... Well, I'll spare you the gory details of my guts, but the, you know, I went to my student health and asked, you know, I thought I had an infection from backpacking and and the guy goes, well, could you be stressed? I'm like, no, I couldn't be stressed. I, you know, I'm vegetarian. I run, I play the violin, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay. (laughs) So, so it took me a while to actually figure out that I was, you know, I was really stressed out and my body was trying to tell me that. And when I started medical school later that summer, started meditating and two things happened. One was that my IBS symptoms went away and have really never come back. And two, I realized how little I knew about how my own mind worked. And so really started down this road of really trying to understand like, how is meditation helping me? You know, I started meditating my first day of medical school and and it just, you know, it's been a really interesting and, and extremely helpful journey.
1: How did you sort of find meditation? Was it introduced to you by someone that you you knew at the time, or was there a resource online?
0: You know, back then, I, it was a book that landed in my lap. It was this uh, John kabat uh Full Catastrophe Living. And back then, there were these things called cassette tapes. Uh, <laughs> then, so I started listening to these cassette tapes and started meditating and um, that's how that's how things got started. It kind of moved from there, where I found a local meditation community, started going on silent meditation retreats during medical school, and during my MD/PhD program, it was about eight years of you know of that schooling. But I was also meditating pretty regularly at that point. That's what actually prompted me to go into psychiatry because I was. I was really fascinated by how the the way that the Buddhists described the mind was really applicable to people with addictions in particular and how our modern day approaches really hadn't worked that well and i wanted to see how those could fit together you know ironically i the last thing i thought i would become was a psychiatrist and here i am a psychiatrist
1: yeah and i bet you never thought it would come full circle with John Kabat-Zinn, because you've you've co-authored papers with him, and you, you wrote *The Craving Mind* with him. Um, that's pretty. It's pretty neat to to learn or to kind of understand where your personal journey with this started, and then to see where you've ended up. Based on that that personal experience, were you were you convinced from the outset that that mindfulness practices like meditation were an important part of, of being a healthy human, or is that something that you experienced personally, but then you became more and more convinced over the years based on your own research and, and clinical experience and kind of using these practices with, with people?
0: Well, I'd certainly seen a lot of anecdotes where people you know, said, oh, this is really helpful for me, and I certainly experienced that myself, but as a, as a scientist and also being trained as a physician, You know, all these anecdotes, these end of one, you know, oh, it worked for me, it must work for everyone else. That's, you know, was really trained against that. And so it really took a lot of time, you know, back when I first started researching this and deciding that I would actually move my research career into studying mindfulness. I really wanted to see for myself if this could be helpful at a population level. So, you know, started studies even when I was in residency with alcohol and cocaine use disorders. I did a randomized controlled trial with people who are trying to quit smoking. And it was actually that study where I was comparing it to gold, mindfulness training to gold standard cognitive therapy. We actually got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And that really, (laughs) that really opened my eyes to saying, you know, wow, this could, this could really work. And I started also practicing, you know, like taking little snippets and practices and concepts and trying it out in my clinic. And when I could see my patients come back and say, yeah, you know, that little thing you taught me last week or two weeks ago was really helpful. And I never, you know, experienced things differently or you know, I even write about in the craving mind at a patient who came into my office and said, "I feel like my head's going to explode if I don't smoke." And so, in just walking him through a very basic mindfulness practice in real time, and seeing this light bulb moment for him, where he realized that, you know, cravings could come and go; he could experience them as as sensations rather than this moral imperative. Uh, so all of that started coming together with my research uh, for me to say, wow, there, this could have some legs. Now, I say this in modern day, <laughs> you know, this stuff's been around for 2,500 years. So if you take a Darwinian perspective, you know, no psychotherapy or treatment has come close to outcompeting it in terms of its longevity. So it was helpful for me to see it from my own experience, to see it from my own research perspective. You know, the Western world has this. Standard of randomized control trials and things like that, and so to apply those standards and see it hold up and even beat gold standard treatment was pretty, you know, was pretty impressive.
1: And that might that might be news to some people listening, that kind of see meditation or mindfulness, and, and perhaps we can uh, define those terms and, and differentiate them, but but perhaps have have seen people sort of paid lip service. To these eastern practices and and maybe don't appreciate that they not only have they been used for so long in those cultures but they have been studied to an extent through the scientific method and we've been able to see that their effect on on health um in a variety of of kind of different patient or subject populations Uh, defining those so my, you've said mindfulness practice, basic mindfulness practice a couple of times. Um, you, we started with your personal experience with meditation. What is what is mindfulness at a broad level, and where does meditation kind of fit into that definition?
0: Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So I think you know, for example, Jon Kabat-Zinn has a definition of mindfulness where he talks about it being paying attention. You know, on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, and from a pragmatic standpoint, I think of it as you know, two elements. Having two elements: uh, awareness. We're aware of what's happening, but we're also bringing this attitude of curiosity in. So we're not seeing it through our cognitive bias lenses, where you know it's like the rosy colored or the dark colored or the whatever bias glasses that we you know, often live our worlds in, you know, and walking around seeing the world through those glasses where we're distorting reality. Uh, so it's it's about taking those glasses off. and one way to help take those off is just to really be curious. And instead of assuming or judging what's happening, we're just really taking it in. So this this attitude of curiosity that comes with awareness. And if we think of how that relates to meditation, We can be aware and curious when we're meditating or not meditating. So I think of meditation as a small circle within this larger circle. If you think of a Venn diagram, meditation can be a practice where we're paying attention. We're being curious. We're aware of what's happening and we don't have to be meditating to be mindful. We don't have to be meditating to be aware and curious. And so, you know it's it's kind of a way to do a formal kind of think of it as a mental workout you know we can be exercising by walking down the street we can also go to the gym for a specific period of time and do specific exercises and I think the mental gym you know, functions the same way we can sit down and meditate we can do some walking meditation we can do formal practices that support that awareness
1: and does that that formal dedicated practice where you're carving out time to train the mind as you would go to go to the gym and train the physical body does that translate over to how the brain is functioning and awareness outside of that formal practice
0: I would say yes and it's even hard to differentiate them so you know when I started meditating it was really you know I was doing these formal practices I was sitting, doing sitting meditation, doing walking meditation, and things like that. Yet, when we, in our first uh, randomized controlled trial of smoking cessation, we looked to see what practices were helping people quit smoking. So, we looked both at the formal practices, like formal meditation practices, and we also looked at the informal practices, where people were learning to be with their cravings in, in the moment that they were smoking. So, uh, or in the moment that they were having an urge to smoke. So if somebody's driving their car and they've got an urge to smoke, um, they're not pulling over on the side of the road and pulling out their meditation cushion and meditating. They're working with that urge in real time. And what we found was that these informal practices mediate or moderated the outcomes, you know, the smoking cessation, even more than the formal practices. So certainly formal practices can be helpful uh, we were finding that informal practices in certain circumstances are even more helpful. And the way I think of that is both are helpful, um, but neither are helpful if you don't practice them. <laughs> so so that's actually informed how we've developed programs uh, for helping people learn these techniques. And we actually start with the informal and incorporate them into somebody's everyday life. And then we layer in the formal practice and say, hey, if you'd like to do more, if you'd like to do something formally, uh, you can do that as well. I guess it's kind of like having somebody who's been sedentary for a long time go for a walk and say, hey, how's it feel to be moving? And they're like, oh, that feels pretty good. And I like, well, you can keep walking. And if you'd like to go to the gym, that can help as well.
1: Okay, so there's there's layers to, to mindfulness. It's not just that image that we might have in our mind of that person out in nature kind of meditating. It's, it's more than that. Um, we might put a pin in that and come back to that as we kind of progress through this conversation. You, you mentioned there, the study that you looked at or studies looking at smoking cessation. So your research has been interested or you've been interested in both how mindfulness affects the actual brain, what's happening in terms of brain physiology and then also How these practices can affect kind of hard outcomes in terms of habit change.
0: Yeah, we, you know, we got interested, you know, this is a long time ago now, just in starting with the basic questions because they hadn't been answered yet. And one of the basic questions, the first ones that we started asking was, hey, what's going on in the brain when somebody is meditating? And so we looked at experienced and novice meditators. And we also wanted to look at commonalities between different meditation practices, because there are a gazillion different types of practices. You can imagine many, many ways to train that awareness, many, many ways to train that curiosity. So we weren't looking for, you know, like, oh, here is this one meditation that is, you know, better than all the others. We wanted to see what was common. So we brought very experienced meditators and then novice meditators into our lab. I was at Yale University at the time, and we you know, scanned their brains while they were meditating uh, using uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. And at first, we, you know, we had this hypothesis that you know, there's got to be some brain region or network that's activated when people are meditating because it certainly felt like I was doing something when I was meditating. And ready for this, we didn't find a single brain region that was increased in activity in experienced versus novice meditators. And so at first, we were thinking, oh, man, what's going on? Is this a failed experiment or whatnot? But then I started thinking and I just said, well, let's look at the opposite. Let's flip the script and see if there are deactivations in experienced meditators versus novices. And here we found something that was not only fascinating, but it kind of shifted how we thought about practice, which was there's this network of brain regions called the default mode network, which is aptly named because it's what we default to when we're not doing anything in particular. And that network has been shown now to be activated during self-referential processing. So I think of it as the self-network. So when we're thinking about ourselves in the past or the future, when we're craving all sorts of stuff, anything from chocolate to cigarettes, to cocaine, to gambling, to all this, you know, this activates the default mood network. And also with psychological conditions. So for example, if somebody is ruminating, which is a hallmark of depression, they're activating the default moon network. When they're worrying, which is a hallmark of anxiety, they're activating this default mood network. Experienced meditators deactivating that network relative to novices when they were meditating. And so that started to paint a picture around, you know, instead of doing something, we have to think of, you know, I get all these questions all the time. It's like, well, how do I clear my mind? Because people have these conceptions of meditation as a way to kind of clear their mind, blank out, zone out, bliss out, Zen out, whatever out. Well, it's in, that sounds in the Western mind, active like I'm doing something to zen out. When we look at the data, what the data suggests are that we are we're actually being with our experience and not getting caught up in it. And so, when we get caught up in thinking about ourselves, that's when this default mind network gets particularly activated. And these practices help train us to notice that tendency to get caught up in self-referential thinking and notice the tendencies to get caught up in craving and just observe those as thoughts, as sensations, as emotions and not get caught up in them. So I think of it as, as learning to be with our experience instead of doing something to change our experience. And when we can learn to be with our experience, we don't have to do anything because the experience is going to change on its own. And if there, so if there's a craving, we can be with that craving it's going to come and go. We don't have to do anything. And so there's this active awareness, but this I think of it as this non-forced being with our experience that is actually much more powerful than doing something about it.
1: If we're not aware, then the default mode network is kind of running on autopilot and there can be, various responses or actions that we're taking that are not in our best interest, that we're unaware of.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. So the purpose of mindfulness being to kind of shine a light on on these things that are occur- occurring on sort of autopilot, as you put it.
0: Yeah. You can think of it as instead of habitually reacting which is what we tend to do when we're on autopilot, you know, it's just whatever our habit mode is going to play out and we're passively kind of getting caught up in it. Instead of habitually reacting, we are responding with awareness. So when there's awareness, it gives us this space where we can have choice and we can start to see, Oh, is that actually helpful? Is that not helpful as compared to, Oh, you know, there's that
1: itch, scratch it. Do you think cultivating awareness is getting harder and harder in a, in a world where there are so many ways for us to become distracted. You know, I've got my phone sitting here, social media, emails, I probably have a tab open on my computer to Netflix, <laughs> all, all of these uh, various things that are trying to grab my a- a- attention. Is that the case? And are these practices, you know, in in fact, becoming more and more important?
0: I would say yes in a nutshell cornell west put it beautifully when he said you know our phones are these weapons of mass distraction <laughs> you know and i think of these as you know when we're distracted it means somebody's you know in this attention economy as people have described it our attention is extremely valuable because they can you know if somebody's got our attention they can sell us stuff you know in in one sense and so with this attention economy the more people can distract us and get us pulled in, you know, toward them, the, you know, the less aware we are of what's happening and that that becomes more and more sophisticated with technology. And so, you know, I think of it, our phones are these, these billboards that we carry around in our pockets that we
1: pay for, <laughs> you know, if
0: we don't know how our mind works, that's what's happening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It- it sounds kind of stupid when you think about it like that. Uh, <laughs> what, what's what's the evolutionary explanation for for why we are so easily distracted? Why is it, why is it so hard to to kind of pay attention to one thing?
0: Well, so do you remember back when you know the internet was just trying to figure out ways to distract us? Do you remember the dancing baby? Like this famous little, uh, yeah, like baby, kind of doing this little twirly thing, that was just mesmerizing for so many people. And what that is based on, not only was was actually know the guy that did the graphics for it, um, but the what that is capitalizing on is our eyes are evolutionarily wired to look at movement, and the way that that works is if there's movement, especially biological movement, then we, we look because our brain says, Hey, is that danger or not? Right. Is that a tiger coming at me? Is that a button modern day? Is that a bus coming at me? You know? And so that, that movement uh, detection system is hardwired. We cannot not do that. And it's actually really helpful. You know, it's set up to help us survive. So, People learn that and they said, oh, let's, you know, we can put that on the internet. <laughs> so, so you see that all sorts of different things of, you know, things that are moving to capture our attention.
1: Would it be fair to say that the, the root cause of a lot of anxiety that people are experiencing today and the destructive habits that they have as a result may not be caused by the things that they attribute it to, but actually be a consequence of not purposefully paying attention to their thoughts and and how they're feeling and sort of disengaging from this completely through distractions.
0: I would say that's at the heart of it. And so again, looking at this through an evolutionary lens, just like movement gets us to automatically look the idea around uncertainty. You know, if something is uncertain, our brain is wired to try to reduce that uncertainty. It gets us to try to get that information. So if there's a rustling in the bushes, we might become afraid and say, oh no, what's that? And we go, look, you know, you can't just, you know, if you're sleeping in your cave or whatever and you hear rustling in the bushes, you can't just roll over and be like, yeah, whatever, tiger. <laughs> I'm going back to sleep because <laughs> the, the tiger's looking for dinner. So we have to go out and see if that's a tiger or if that's our, you know, Clans person, you know, taking a leak, you know, and so once we reduce that uncertainty, we can do what's necessary. If it's a tiger, we fight it or run away. Uh, if it's our clans person, we can say, you know, hey, (laughs) can you not do that at night when you wake everybody up and scare them? So fear is a really helpful survival mechanism, right? We learn, okay, that sound is safe, that sound is not safe. And then more recently, our brains have evolved to plan for the future. And planning has obvious survival uh, benefits, right? If we can plan for the future, we can maximize our time, we can we can be efficient and we can plan. We can, you know, we can do things over time. There's probably this evolutionary bottleneck where you bring fear and planning together. So if you think of anxiety, it's, you know, defined as, Feeling of nervousness, nervousness, worry, or unease about something with an uncertain, uncertain outcome. You know, basically, I think of it as fear of the future. So, fear of the future is basically bringing two survival mechanisms that are helpful by themselves together, and when you mush those together, it actually becomes really. Uh, evolutionarily not helpful. So anxiety hasn't been shown to be helpful for our survival. It's got all sorts of negative effects mentally and physically. So fear helpful, planning helpful, fear of the future equals anxiety, not so helpful. And why is it not so helpful? Because if we're afraid right now about something in the future, the future by definition isn't happening. So we can't run away from the future right now. Does that make sense? We become trapped. Yeah, exactly. And so we start getting stuck in these cycles of trying to avoid things in the future, and that's where planning or planning again helpful shifts to worrying. And this was something that that I never learned in medical school, but w- when I learned it, was the probably the single most important thing that I learned clinically was that anxiety can actually be driven like a habit. And by that, I mean, the feeling of worrying can drive the mental behavior of worrying. You know, feeling worried is a physical sensation. Worrying is a mental behavior. And there was a guy, Thomas Borkovic, that suggested back in the 1980s that there's enough feeling of control, or at least that we're doing something when we're worrying, that that's rewarding to our brain. And then it feeds back and says, hey, next time you're anxious, you should worry. And so we get stuck in these cycles of anxiety and worry that don't help anything and actually just make us more anxious. And if we don't notice that, if we can't see that our minds are doing that, then we just get stuck.
1: I followed some of Anna Lemke's work and I read her book, Dopamine Nation. I'm just trying to connect a a few dots here. I might be getting this wrong, but so are you saying that when we have anxious feelings and we worry that worry in and of itself kind of triggers some type of dopamine release or temporary relief. And then in doing that, there's this association between uh, the trigger, which is let's say my anxious feelings that I'm getting. Um, I want to reduce those anxious feelings. I worry, I feel better. And so my, body sort of builds an association there. And next time I feel anxious, I just repeat that pattern.
0: Yep. Just, so linking this to dopamine, this process is called reward-based learning or reinforcement learning. And dopamine is central to that process. Uh, two main flavors are positive reinforcement And then, you know, where something pleasant happens, we do something to keep that pleasantness around. We get this dopamine firing when we learn, oh, yeah, that keeps it going. And then the negative reinforcement, which is, you know, using the example of anxiety, it makes something unpleasant go away. So the feeling of anxiety is unpleasant. The mental behavior of worrying feels better than the feeling of anxiety. So that. Reduction of something unpleasant also makes our brain learn and says, "Hey, you know, do this some more. It, it feels better than feeling than just wallowing in the anxiety."
1: But that that worrying or the kind of alleviation of the anxious feelings, that's that's short-lived. So, what, why, why does worrying ultimately not solve the problem and, and lead to us feeling even more anxious, perhaps down the road? <laughs>
0: so the short answer is that worrying doesn't help us plan it doesn't keep us safe and in fact it just makes us more anxious so it doesn't solve any problems that that brief relief that comes from feeling like we're in control or at least we're doing something you know there's a distraction component to it there's that control component to it None of that is solving problems. None of that is helping us plan. And in fact, when we look at it carefully, it's just feeding back and making us more anxious.
1: So this is a, a, a kind of shortfall of reward-based learning that we can, we can develop a, a habit um, that solves some sort of problem immediately but at the same time it could be creating a larger kind of longer term problem
0: yeah yeah so let's use a real world example i had a patient who was referred to me for anxiety and in my outpatient clinic and when he when he walks in my door i'm like yeah you look pretty anxious you know but he described how he started getting panic attacks when driving on the highway and he had learned to avoid driving on the highway so that he could avoid getting panic attacks. Yet this was seriously curtailing his life. He was even anxious driving on local roads. So he had learned, you know, trigger, worry that he was gonna get in a car accident, behavior, avoid driving on the highway, and then the reward was that he didn't get a panic attack, yet it had all these negative consequences that came with it. And so, you know, in our first clinic visit, I just mapped it out with him you know, and, and helped him see that this was a loop. And, and in those, after that 30 second, you know, mapping process, his eyes got really big because he'd never realized that this is how his brain worked. And he was stuck in this loop. So I, I just sent him home and had him start mapping out his anxiety habit loops. And he set up a follow-up for two weeks. And it was funny, his first follow-up he comes back. Oh, and I should also mention he was 400 pounds. He was like, you know, whatever. That's a lot of kilos as well. When he came to see me and he had a lot of health anxiety because he had high blood pressure. He had his liver is all messed up because of his obesity. He had obstructive sleep apnea and all this. And so he comes back and he was so excited when he came to his first follow-up and he couldn't wait to tell me. He's like, hey doc, I lost 14 pounds. And I looked at him because we hadn't even talked about weight loss yet, you know, because we were just going to focus on the anxiety. And he said, I was mapping out these anxiety habit loops. And I realized that anxiety was driving me to eat fast food. And as he described it, he was addicted to eating fast food as a way to numb himself or avoid that anxiety. And when he started paying attention, he realized that the fast food was just feeding his health anxiety. And so he said, I stopped doing it. You know, he basically and he'd already lost 14 pounds. He went on to lose over 100 pounds, has maintained that and actually lost even more since then. This is several years ago. And what he said to me was, this is the easiest weight loss I've ever had because I now know how my mind works. And he had become disenchanted with that behavior. So I mentioned that because we do all sorts of behaviors. So worrying is one of the main ones with anxiety, but we also do, you know, we procrastinate, we eat junk food, we go on net, you know, we watch Netflix movies, we go on social media, all of these things as these temporary measures that give us this brief relief, but actually a lot of pain and put a lot of pain into our future.
1: If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker. A leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics and biometric data from Harvard, MIT and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsightTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides and blood glucose. Important nutrients like vitamin D and iron as well as hormones like Cortisol sex hormone binding globulin free testosterone and total testosterone Before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity Your data tells the story of your health with inside tracker get to know your story and create a lifestyle That delivers better health for longer get 20% off the entire inside tracker store to get started and redeem this offer go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof longevity challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Just before we double click on on habit loops and, and what mapping them out actually looks like, what's the difference between anxiety and depression or the relationship between the two?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the two, I'll say clinically, I'd say the vast majority of my patients have both. And there's a there's – a, and often people describe as an anxious depression or they have a flavor of depression with their anxiety. And the way that works is that our brains are really good at kind of being stuck in the past and the future. And so, you know, with this self-referential thinking – you know, we think about ourselves in the past, we think about ourselves in the future. And so if you just apply that that loop of thinking about ourselves in the past, that tends to fall into that flavor of rumination and depression. And if you take that and just apply it to the future, that's where worry, often described as perseveration, you know, we worry about the future, that's where it's applied to anxiety. So a lot of people's brains are really good at getting stuck in the past and the future. And so that's where the two come together. That same perseverative process happens. And if you apply it to the past, you know, rumination applied to the future is worry. But it's basically the same habit loop itself.
1: Is there a difference between experiencing anxious feelings and being diagnosed with anxiety?
0: Well, people who are diagnosed with anxiety tend to have a lot of anxious feelings. And so I think it's more of a, matter of degree and i have to say you know our diagnostic criteria are probably not the best Uh, so there's a lot of work to do from a scientific and also a clinical standpoint to really uh, do a better job of differentiating defining what these are so if you look at generalized anxiety disorder for example you know they ask questions around like how often do you worry how often do you feel nervous how often do you do this or that? And so, and, and generally speaking with a lot of psychiatric diagnoses, there has to be this piece where it's affecting your life. And so somebody could feel anxious, but it's not really having a huge impact on their social life, on their personal life, on their mental or physical health. They're just feeling anxious. Whereas, you know, for example, a generalized anxiety disorder, People often describe waking up anxious, worrying all day, feeling anxious all day, trying to go to sleep, worrying that they can't go to sleep, finally getting to sleep, and then waking up the next morning and repeating that process. And so there's this degree where they're just, they just feel like they are anxious. I remember somebody who was pilot testing our unwinding anxiety program wrote me an email and said, I feel like, anxiety is deeply etched in my bones right that's how identified that person was with it and so that, that probably falls into the you know clinically relevant um, category where it's, it's really affecting somebody's life
1: do we have a sense for what the kind of percentage of the population is at least in, in countries like the united states that are affected by anxiety to to that degree and and overall, how how are we going with regards to, to treating it?
0: I, I'm terrible with numbers. I just know that anxiety disorders are the most common category of, of uh, psychiatric disorders. And I would, you know, especially during the pandemic, people were looking at, you know, what are the what are the uh, prevalence, you know, what, what are the rates? And it was upwards of like 30% or something like that. Some huge percentage of folks are... Met, you know, clinical criteria. Again, I'm terrible with numbers, but it was something like that. Now, in terms of treating anxiety, from a medication standpoint, nobody's really developed a new anxiety medication for decades. You know, so the benzodiazepines were popularized back in the 1950s. Uh, you know, and they were so popular that uh, rolling stones even you know they wrote a song mother's little helper um you know the valium uh, she goes running to the shelter um mother's little helper i think keith richards actually wrote the lyrics for that and you know so that's how popular they were and then people started realizing whoa this stuff's addictive <laughs> you know, and then it has all these other uh, untoward health effects so maybe not so helpful to be prescribing those and they're now not recommended as first-line, you know, long-term treatment for anxiety. SSRIs came out in the nineteen eighties. You know, Prozac uh, was heralded as this miracle drug, um, mostly you know started with depression and then you know, used for anxiety. The S- the SSRIs are now struggling to even dif- differentiate themselves from placebo, and so it's hard to get a sense for how well they work. I think the last meta-analysis that I looked at. This review is almost twenty years old now. Was that um, there's this term in medicine called number needed to treat? So it gives you a rough and dirty of how well a medication works. And that number needed to treat was 5.2. So basically, one in five patients showed a significant reduction in symptoms when given an SSRI. And the irony was that this actually contributed to my own anxiety. So when I started practicing as a psychiatrist, you know, trained to prescribe SSRIs first line treatment. Yet, I was playing the medication lottery because I didn't know which one of the next five patients was going to benefit and then also what to do with the other four. So, you know, I wouldn't say that we're doing particularly well from a medication standpoint in treating anxiety.
1: Yeah, that kind of reminds me somewhat of a a Netflix series that I've started watching, Painkillers, it's called. It's on OxyContin, Mm -hmm. but some similarities yeah the Sacklers they were
0: they cut their teeth on on Valium and and other benzodiazepines back in the 50s realizing that this is very lucrative and opioids are even more lucrative yes
1: Uh, highly addictive okay so so to kind of recap where we're at so far before we move into this idea of of rewiring the brain as you put it and what that looks like Um, so we have these these habits they they kind of run on autopilot within the the kind of uh, default mode network or dmn as as you put it and the purpose of those habits is to sort of solve problems for us make our life easier Um, things that we need to do in our day-to-day occur on autopilot that um, you know evolutionary speaking helped us with survival but today it could be walking into a dark room and we automatically flick the light switch on. It solved the problem of not being able to see anything. And we didn't have to use a lot of brain power to to make it happen because the behavior sort of occurs automatically or reflexively. And that works really well for healthy habits, but it can be a problem for a destructive habit because we can be performing these behaviors that aren't serving us sort of reflexively with little awareness am i am i grasping all of that correctly
0: absolutely yeah and i think the walking into a dark room is a great example of you know dark room a lot of uncertainty flip on the light switch no more uncertainty yeah so absolutely
1: so in your your book unwinding anxiety you put forward a solution to anxiety and and these destructive habits that can be downstream of anxiety uh, is to rewire the survival or old brain, um, not the the kind of rational or, or new brain. Can you explain the difference between the old and the new brain if someone's hearing that for the first time?
0: Yeah, and this is, I, I want to highlight that this is a, a heuristic. It's a, It's a useful explanatory model. It's not really how the brain is set up. So Often we'll hear about the lizard brain or this or that. The brain's not really set up with layers like this. Certainly there's a cortical layer on top of these, you know, more basic structures like the basal ganglia, yet they're very intricately <laughs> connected with each other. But the heuristic is really helpful. And the way that works is, you know, these these, these very important survival mechanisms are going to win out over... Over other mechanisms that aren't as critical, and, and we can even think of them as the ones that evolved later in you know in time, like planning. Uh, or you know this heuristic is that they they're kind of a newer and the younger part of the brain. So for example, the prefrontal cortex is a younger part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective, and it's involved in planning, in cognitive control, you know, willpower, things like that, and so. Ironically, it's the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed or anxious. You know, there's this term, I've uh, probably heard it, hangry. You know, when we're, we're hungry, we get angry, we have trouble with self-control. Or in addiction treatment, we learn this uh, acronym HALT. When we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that's when we're vulnerable to relapse because that's when our you know, our thinking, our willpower, our cognitive control parts of the brains are least functional. And so from a very pragmatic perspective, you know, I don't know if this started with the age of enlightenment or whatnot, you know, I think therefore I am, we've been really focusing on thinking our ways out of problems. Yet, where this is, you know, this was the dominant paradigm before neuroscience was even a field of study. And if you take a neuroscience approach, the neuroscience would say, you know, willpower at best is, you know, it's more myth than muscle. And so we said, well, you know, if if you can't rely on this part of the brain, let's look at these older parts of the brain that are really strong, you know, and they're going to dominate when, you know, when we're, you know, when our prefrontal cortex goes offline, let's leverage the power of that part of the brain. And that's where, that's the habit part of the brain. It's kind of, you know, we we default to our habits when we're on autopilot, but also when that thinking part of the brain goes offline that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and it it, it gets me thinking about uh, something that Dan Butner, not sure if you know him. You've, you've probably come across his work with the Blue Zones, but heard, something I've that heard, he often Oh, yes,
0: that's going to say Blue Zones, yeah.
1: It's something that he often says is the difference between Uh, centenarians in the blue zones and people in in developed countries who are experiencing poor health and have a, a a shorter health span and are living shorter lives is is not willpower it's not that the centenarians you know have you know this greater degree of willpower it's that you know he puts it down to the the fact that they just live in in an environment that is conducive to to better habits um but there's some overlap there i guess with regards to you know, willpower or willing our way to better habits perhaps not being the the best strategy maybe we can come back to an environment if if and, and when we get the opportunity to talk about food because I, I know you have some things to to say on that uh So this idea of, of (coughs) focusing on the kind of quote unquote, old brain or where we default to when we're under stress, is this what you mean when you say in order to develop new habits, we have to change the way we think about our habits?
0: Yes. And I would say absolutely. And from a pragmatic standpoint, We have to change the way we feel about habits. And what I mean by that is the feeling body is much stronger than the thinking brain. And to just double click on that, when you look at habit formation, it's driven by how something feels, right? Is something rewarding or not? It's not about, well, I think this is good or bad for me, right? If, if we could just use our thinking brain, then none of my patients would smoke because they all know that smoking is bad for them. But their feeling body says, well, I'm going into withdrawal, this doesn't feel good. Okay, so I know I shouldn't smoke, but I'm going to because it scratches that itch of withdrawal. So that feeling body is so powerful. And so you know we really focus on that as like, okay, let's change the way we feel about habits. And what I mean by that is we bring awareness in so that we can really feel into what the results of these behaviors are. So as we mentioned earlier, this process is called reward based learning for a reason. If something's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop. So from a neuroscience standpoint, there's this critical element that drives what's called an error term that changes behavior. And that critical element is awareness. If you pay attention and something is rewarding, you're going to keep doing it. If you pay attention and it's not rewarding, you're going to stop. And then as you pay attention, you see how rewarding something is, it becomes a habit. Uh, Let's use an everyday example. Let's say a new bakery opens up in my neighborhood and I go in there, I like chocolate cake, so I have a certain expectation for, what good chocolate cake tastes like. And so if I go in there and I eat their chocolate cake, it's like the most delicious chocolate cake I've ever had. <laughs> I get what's called a positive prediction error, which means it's better than expected. Dopamine fires in my brain. I learn good bakery, go back there. On the other hand, if I eat the cake, I'm like, meh. I've had better. My brain gets a negative prediction error and it says, don't bother also dopamine firing i learn don't go back to that bakery so i've learned in both scenarios
1: we're trying to to break these associations that we have these kind of uh, reflexive behaviors that we have to a particular trigger with attention drawing attention to them and reassigning the the value or the reward that we get from them.
0: Yeah. And the good news is we don't have to actively reassign anything. Our brain will do it for us as long as we pay attention, as long as we're aware of what's happening. So for example, if we're really aware of what a cigarette tastes and smells like, you know, (laughs) that's what I have my patients do. I say, go smoke. And they look at me like, my doc just told me to smoke, but I said, no, pay attention when you smoke. And they go out and smoke and they realize the cigarettes taste like crap. And so there, that gets reassigned in their brain because they're now paying attention. They never tasted good. They just kind of ignore that because they're more focused on getting that dopamine hit and getting, you know, relieving that withdrawal. But they can't, once they pay attention, they can't ignore that. And they can do the same thing with worrying. You know, say, well, pay attention to the results of worrying. and wh- What do you get? Well, I feel more anxious. Oh, I didn't notice that before. Oh, and they start to become disenchanted with the worrying because they realize it's not solving their problems. It's not keeping them safe. And in fact, it's feeding back and making them more anxious.
1: So is there a tipping point that, that needs to be reached in order to, to break that habit i'm just thinking here about the example of let's say the 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 person who's smoking that they mm-hmm. would have to be so disgusted by the the smell and the the taste that it was outweighing that immediate relief that they are getting that they can feel
0: yeah absolutely you you've hit the nail on the head which is if if the reward value is net positive they're going to keep doing it if it's net negative, they start to become disenchanted. If it's really negative, it that disenchantment builds even faster. Uh, and, and as a, an example, my lab did a study with our. We have this app called Eat Right Now that helps people pay attention as they eat. It helps people with emotional eating, overeating, etc. And we looked to see how quickly that reward value dropped below zero. Ready for this? It only takes ten to fifteen times on average somebody to really pay attention to whatever eating feels like for that reward value to be net negative and for them to change their behavior. Now, we all know this from our own experience. (laughs) Nobody ever says, oh, it feels so good when I overeat. You know, they're like, oh, bloated. Oh, my stomach's exploding. Oh, I feel lethargic. All this negative stuff that we kind of ignore or watch television so that (laughs) we're distracted from it. But when people really pay attention, they can gather that information pretty quickly.
1: So when someone's eating that cake they're try- and they're trying to break that habit, it's a little different to the cigarette. It, the taste is amazing, but what you're saying is in terms of paying attention, in this instance, they're paying attention to the more immediate things that they, they can feel how their digestion is, whether they have energy afterwards, as opposed to thinking about the long-term consequences of eating those foods. Um, Because I know we're, we're, we're pretty poor, I guess, at uh, delayed gratification, practicing delayed gratification versus, you know, immediate gratification and um, acting on, on impulse because that slice of cake tastes amazing
0: yes yeah and that's an evolutionary function that says i don't know if i'm gonna be alive in 10 years so rather eat the cake now or smoke the cigarette now as compared to well maybe i'll gain weight or maybe i'll get cancer so yes very serious serious delay discounting curve meaning that you know we're going to favor those immediate rewards over future ones and it's hard for us to imagine into the future but it's pretty easy for us to imagine what that first taste of cakes going to feel like. So let's use a real world example. We run a live group every week for people using our digital therapeutics. And somebody came to the group and said, you know, I was going to a party with my husband and my friend makes this, you know, world renowned cake. You know, she's like, everybody talks about this cake, you know, because it's so good. She's like, I was going to this party fully expecting to eat three pieces of this cake because that's what I've always done. So she was using our Eat Right Now program and learning to pay attention as she ate. And so she ate, literally, she she was so incredulous. She's like, I ate half a piece of this cake and it was still delicious. But then I didn't want any more. And I turned to my husband and said, does the cake not taste as good? And he's like, no, it tastes just as good as it always does. But she's realizing she didn't need to eat more to really enjoy it. And in fact, when she ate more, she enjoyed it less because her body was saying, dude, that's too much. I think of it as this this pleasure plateau, you know. And so it's like, How much is enough? You eat, you know, it tastes good, tastes good, tastes good. And then it stops, you know, our body's like, Okay, whoa, put on the brakes. And then we hit this plateau where it's no longer rewarding. And then if we don't pay attention, we're gonna go over this cliff of overindulgence, you <laughs> know you know and we're off the cliff and then we crash and and think boy that was that was three pieces my I feel terrible now
1: for someone to kind of navigate this in their own life and you mentioned habit loops before but what we're talking about here is identifying what's triggering you to take certain action whatever the behavior is that Uh, perhaps you're trying to get rid of or reduce and then using attention to really hone in on how you actually feel after that behavior so getting very very i guess purposeful honest with what that experience is and in doing so reassigning the value that is attached to that action
0: yeah, and I would say, so when it's habitual, we're not paying attention to how rewarding it is. We're just acting it out on autopilot. So I would, I would say the reassignment, I would say we can think of it as re-assigning, meaning we're seeing clearly how rewarding it actually is right now. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I just want to be clear about that because often people try to think themselves into changing behavior, like this should be bad for me, or I shouldn't like cake, or I shouldn't eat cake. Well, cake tastes good. Ice cream tastes good. Chocolate tastes good. You know, That's always for people that like chocolate, ice cream, cake, it's always going to taste good. And if they pay attention, they're going to realize how delicious it actually is. So the reassignment comes when we see what the results are, for example, when we eat too much or when we smoke a cigarette and realize that oh i never really paid attention you know i started smoking when i was a teenager and i never really paid attention to how bad it actually tastes and smells well now they can't not see that because that that's right in their face when they're paying attention that's the critical aspect i think of it as developing disenchantment with the behavior and that disenchantment comes exclusively from awareness if they're not paying attention they're just going to keep doing it
1: if someone says to you, how do I I cultivate that awareness? Where do you start? Do you start with a a practice like meditation, a sort of dedicated mindfulness practice, or is it more in the moment as they're engaging in particular behaviors?
0: Yeah. So over the last several decades, what I've learned seeing this clinically, seeing this from my own experience in, in developing these programs is that it's most helpful to help people see how these apply in their daily lives. So, it, you know, now the, the common adage is, you know, we know that physical exercise is good for us. We beat ourselves up when we don't develop an exercise routine. You know, I should exercise. And then we judge ourselves. Same thing for mental behavior. It's like, Oh yeah, meditation, all this research supposed to be helpful for me. I should meditate, you know, and then they beat themselves up and they don't do it. So here, We've started with really s- helping people apply this in their daily lives. So, you know, if somebody's struggling with worrying, well, they're worrying so they can pay attention as they're worrying. It doesn't take extra time, it just takes some curiosity to be like, oh, what do I get from worrying? If somebody's struggling with eating junk food or overeating, they're still eating. So, they might as well pay attention as compared to, oh, let me develop, carve out an extra 30 minutes in my non existent day because it's already overbooked to start meditating. So, really, you know, I think the pragmatic approach is to start with helping somebody really understand and see very clearly how their mind works. If you don't know how your mind works, you can't work with it. And so, that's where this habit mapping is really helpful we've even developed a, a free habit map or anybody can download it from mapmyhabit.com where it's like, you know, f- whatever habit you're looking to work with, you can just download this PDF and start mapping it out. That's how, that's how critical that first step is. Just like I described with my patient, you know, like we're mapping out his, his anxiety habit loops.
1: So the purpose of that exercise is to then give you parts of your, day-to-day that you can pay a little more attention to.
0: Yeah. And it actually helps motivate people to pay more attention because as soon as they start mapping out one habit loop, their mind starts going, Oh, what else am I doing habitually? And they start to see all these habit loops that are often linked on top of each other. So once somebody gets the idea, you know, it's really just three elements. What's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? Once they start mapping it out, they can see how often they map, they you know, these habit loops play out in their day, and then they can start to see what they're getting from them. And w- one thing I want to highlight is often people don't notice the trigger. They're already, you know, they're just stuck in a behavior. They don't have to worry about that because the trigger is the least important part of the equation. This is counterintuitive to a lot of people because they think, oh, if I can just identify the triggers, I can avoid them and then life will be good. Well, we can't really avoid life. So that's not helpful. And if we look at it from a neuroscience perspective, the triggers are just what set off the process. They're not the things that reinforce it. So we really have to focus on the reinforcement mechanisms. That's why it's called reinforcement learning. So after somebody maps it out, then the second and probably more critical step is really looking at that reward value. I think of it as, um, you know, in Buddhist terms, they describe it as cause and effect. You know, what's the behavior? What's the result? And if we can see, you know, we've been talking about this, if they can see how rewarding or unrewarding the behavior is, that's what starts to shift behavior. Notice how willpower is nowhere near that equation.
1: And so if you do that exercise and you're aware of the trigger, the behavior... And then you get really real on the reward, the value (laughs) that you're getting from that. When next time you're stressed and the quote unquote new brain sort of goes offline. Are you saying that now the old brain we've, we've sort of rewired that. So the previous way we would respond to a trigger with, with a certain behavior may not occur or to the same extent
0: yes if the reward hierarchy has changed in terms of let's say overeating or worrying and we see very very clearly that worrying or overeating or smoking is not as rewarding as we once remembered then it is much easier our brains like why would i do that as long as we can remember how unrewarding it is if we're just You know, if it's just see cake, eat cake, you're not going to change it. You've got to pay attention and remember, and kind of often people will imagine, okay, what's it, you know, if they are like, do I want some cake? And then they'll imagine what eating the cake is like, right? That actually is based on previous experience. And if the previous experience is, you know, eat an extra piece of cake when you're full and you don't feel so good and you feel tired and sluggish, then that that negative reward value, that unrewarding quality will help somebody say, oh, you know, don't really feel like eating the cake right now. I I think of it as, you know, that that step actually leads into what I think of as a third step where I call it finding the bigger, better offer. So if the reward hierarchy has shifted where we're not as excited to do the old behavior, our brain is going to look for something more rewarding and that more rewarding behavior could simply be not doing the old behavior. So for example, the woman that ate half a piece of cake, that was more rewarding than eating 3 pieces of cake. Still the same cake, it's just the amount. So not doing it could be more rewarding. And we can also find alternatives that are more rewarding. So for example, this is where I think I love curiosity, you know, this this built-in attitudinal quality of mindfulness because it in itself is a superpower for helping us be with unpleasant experience so for example if we feel anxious and our old habit is to worry we can see that worrying is not very rewarding we become disenchanted with it and so our brain says well give me something better and so if we substitute curiosity in for worry you tell me what, what feels better worrying or being curious
1: yeah being curious
0: yeah, yeah, it's a no-brainer. And so we can bring that curiosity to our physical sensations. And instead of going, oh no, I feel anxious, we can go, oh, what does anxiety feel like? And we can start to explore those physical sensations and turn toward them instead of running away from them. And I love there's a quote attributed to Marcus Aurelius, you know, who's this Roman emperor and a stoic. The, the quote is what stands in the way becomes the way. And so if we think of anxiety as something that stands in the way of us living a good life, and we're always running away from it or trying to distract ourselves or worrying or doing something about it, instead of going, oh, no, I've got anxiety, we can bring that curiosity in and go, oh, here's anxiety. How can I use this to learn about my own experience and learn about my, the way that my brain reacts to things? And suddenly it becomes an opportunity to learn instead of running away. You know, what stands in the way becomes the way.
1: Right. And an opportunity to grow as a person. So you can kind of flip the narrative on anxiety as being a really negative thing to a teacher of some sorts. Absolutely. I think in in one of your books, you mentioned a strategy of saying out out loud, hmm, when someone feels a little little anxious.
0: Yeah, I mentioned that in the Unwinding Anxiety book. And I like that because it brings us into our embodied experience instead of getting stuck in the thinking mind. You know, it's like, you know, we often get stuck in the why am I anxious, which is a loop unto itself that doesn't help. And so here if we can kind of shift out of that old habit of thinking and into a new habit of being, which is being curious and go, or oh, and that in itself isn't you know it's just I don't know when some when I do it it's like it becomes this embodied phenomenon and it also opens me to my experience so I can
1: turn toward it. The equation that sort of underpins our habits is trigger behavior, and then there's a reward, some type of of value and. What we've been speaking about is that from the perspective of of building better habits and and breaking destructive habits, the reward part of that calculation is most important. And we we can adjust the reward that we're getting from a particular behavior or reassign it through paying more attention, being more mindful, Let's go back to that example of someone who's struggling with cake. Would it also not be helpful for that person to adjust their environment to not have the cake or the, the trigger, um, you know, in their home as well, or because that that is put out as a strategy, right, that a lot of people will talk about in terms of trying to uh, break bad habits, or is that... Perhaps distracting us from the most important aspect, which is reassigning the value such that <clears throat> when we step out into the wide world in an environment that we can't control, um, we can continue to make you know or we continue to, can continue to take action that is serving us and minimize action that's not serving us.
0: Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. I think you've put it nicely. So you can. Think of if we just don't have ice cream in the house or don't have cake in the house, then we're not going to eat it. But that only works until we go to the grocery store. Or I've heard many, many heroic stories where somebody is so stressed out. You know, it's the middle of the night, it's freezing cold, it's raining and snowing. They they make it to the store and get the ice cream because their brain's like, I got to do this. And so it reminds people how little control they actually have over their habits, especially when they're really stressed out. So certainly the avoidance, I mean, if you if you don't tickle the, if you don't poke the dragon or poke the bear, it's not going to attack you. But the better way is in the more sustainable way is to train the bear. And so then we don't have to avoid or be afraid of our own, you know, the, our, our own brains. And we can be able to, you know, not only not worry about like, oh, I, got, I have to avoid this or I have to do this or this, but we can also learn to leverage the strength of them to develop healthy habits, you know? And so we can use the same process to notice how good it feels, you know, not only to not overeat, but to eat healthy food, you know, to exercise. So, you know, using my own example, and I write about this in The Hunger Habit. I used to be addicted to eating gummy worms. You know, I would eat like the whole bag. And so and I, f- I remember figuring that, well, I'm going to feel pretty crappy after it's over, but there, then there won't be any more until there are more. And so I started paying attention. And the first thing I noticed for me, these things taste like these sickly sweet petroleum products. You know, it's like, and so I started to become disenchanted with the gummy worms and now somebody can dangle a gummy worm right in front of my face. And I'm like, man, <laughs> you eat it. <laughs> but the other thing I realized was that, you know, blueberries actually for me have the perfect level of sweetness, you know? And so I can eat blueberries, but not, you know, go crazy and overindulge on blueberries. <laughs> like I'll stop when I'm full and that, and it just feels good because i I get this healthy level of energy. I don't get a sugar rush and crash. I don't get irritable. And so there's that bigger, better offer that comes from these natural foods that are actually pretty healthy for us. And so when I pay attention to that, it makes it much easier to develop the quote unquote habit of picking up the blueberry instead of the electric blue gummy worm.
1: You and me both there. I can, <laughs> yeah, I can certainly ha- have my fair, fish, fair, sh- fair <laughs> share of blueberries. That's that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, we 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 spoke about willpower. You just mentioned there um, addiction, and we spoke about will willpower. So how do we how do we kind of um, square this idea of of reassigning the the value that we're getting from a particular behaviour with abstinence, which to me seems like more of a willpower sort of play, um, but it's put forward as a, a kind of strategy for people that are affected by addiction. Is that not the case, that abstinence requires an enormous amount of willpower?
0: Often people who practice abstinence will say that it requires a, an enormous amount of willpower. And I would say when people take alternative approaches to Exploring the reward value of behavior, abstinence comes about in a different way and doesn't feel like it's a lot of work. So I'm quote unquote abstinence from abstinent from gummy worms, not because I'm forcing myself not to eat them, but I'm totally disenchanted with them. Like I just you could, you know, again, I could fill my bathtub with gummy worms and take a bath and I'm not gonna eat one. Yeah. So you know, I think the dominant paradigm again has been, you know, this—you know—grit your teeth, suck it up. It's going to be painful, but you can do it. And then if you achieve enough abstinence, then you can keep maintain it. You know that a lot of people still—you know—that's how they did it, and they feel like that's the only way to do it. Again, you know, I'd say that sounds kind of painful. And for people that relapse, which is a huge number of people. It's because, you know, it's this abstinence violation effect. It's so common that there's even a term for it, which is I mean, my patients call it the effets. <laughs> Where they're like, they get really stressed and they smoke a cigarette and they're like eff on, and they smoke a whole pack, you know, or they have a drink and they just go right back to drinking. So it's a very tenuous abstinence when somebody is relying solely on willpower.
1: Right, so what you're saying is abstinence paired with purposefully um, paying attention um, in the moment as Jon Kabat-Zinn sort of puts it, is likely to lead to a better outcome. Do we know that? Has that been, is that something that's been studied looking at people with uh, addiction who um, discontinue a behavior and what is their success rate in sort of um, not relapsing and going back to that previous behavior?
0: You know, it's it's actually really hard to study the real world abstinence rates because, one, there are a lot of people for whom the term is called natural recovery, where they just, you know, for some reason, stop using or stop drinking or stop smoking or whatever. Uh, smoking, not as much, but using. And it's hard to study that population because they're not into doing studies. They're just like, oh, I stopped using. And if you talk to a lot of folks, you can look at this, you know, it fits with finding becoming disenchanted with behavior. So often you'll hear this, somebody has to hit rock bottom before they'll change behavior. Well, that points toward becoming totally disenchanted with a behavior, right? They'll, they lose everything and they're like, this is not worth it. And then they start changing their life. And they live abstinent, and they're like, "Oh, this is worth it." So, for example, I have a patient who'd been have severe issues with alcohol for thirty years since her twenties. I started seeing her in her late forties, and she had teenage kids, and she was having all these problems, you know, with drinking. It's terrible for her family life, terrible for her physical health, for her mental health. And she started, you know, when she got uh, when she stopped drinking, one thing we did together was had her wake up every morning and just notice what it feels like not to have a hangover, not to feel guilty, to be able to look your teenage kids in their eyes and them be proud of you for being sober and being their mom as compared to this zombie, you know, under the control of alcohol. And that was so rewarding for her that was a really helpful mechanism for her to maintain that abstinence. And that was three, four years ago, you know, every morning wakes up. It's like, it feels so much better to not be drinking. And so there's that bigger, better offer that comes from living, you know, for her an abstinent life.
1: Right. So that she was able to use that to reach that tipping point that we spoke to earlier. Where now the yeah. the net value from disengaging in that behavior was positive it outweighed absolutely. And whatever benefit she was or reward she was getting from the behavior itself absolutely what about this idea of replacing bad habits with good ones is there is there evidence that that is an effective strategy
0: it's certainly been a strategy that's been used for a long time so smoking you know eat carrot or eat carrots or candy instead of smoking a cigarette. And so, you know, or a lot of folks who've struggled with addiction, they'll, they'll start exercising because it feels better. So certainly more healthy. One caveat there is that if, if somebody substitutes one for another, they haven't actually mastered the loop itself. And so they have to have that thing that alternate thing there to help them as a it's kind of like a crutch and it could even be a support group somebody goes to support groups as a way to stay sober support groups are really helpful I don't want to I'm not saying that they're not helpful but if somebody becomes let's say dependent upon a support group and not they don't have the the internal uh, shift themselves then that becomes the alternative thing so if somebody becomes you know, they're like, I exercise instead of using cocaine, and then they get injured because they're over exercising, then their brain says, Well, back to the cocaine. You know? So very helpful behavior and can be dangerous in the context of not really being able to master their own mind.
1: Right. So there's really no way around this if we if we want to kind of try and bulletproof ourselves against a destructive habit. And, and don't want to fall back into old habits. We, we don't want to, to relapse. We, we have to, to some degree, become disenfranchised with that behavior.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that really comes from knowing how the mind works, learning to work with the mind. You know, it, it's really that simple. And the, the key to all of that, you know, as we've talked about, is awareness.
1: I appreciate that not all destructive habits would be downstream of anxiety, even though we've spoken quite a lot about anxiety. But I'm interested in in just coming back to anxiety for a moment here. If we change the habits that are downstream of anxiety, have we addressed anxiety itself or or do we also have to go back upstream to get to the actual cause of anxiety in the first place that led to the destructive behavior? And and again, I realize that these things are probably quite connected because I imagine that you could be feeling anxious for whatever reason, then you adopt a behavior and it makes the anxiety worse. So they are sort of interconnected. But is it the the fact that if you if you just focus on the the habits and the behaviors, you may be overlooking the sort of primary cause of that person's anxiety in the first place?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. So I would say with anxiety in particular. Often, and I can even say that this is the case for me as well, anxiety just pops up out of the blue. We have no idea where it came from. A lot of people get stuck in, like, oh, why am I anxious now? I shouldn't be anxious. I'm, I'm living a good life, you know, and, but the anxiety just shows up. You know, it doesn't matter how healthy someone is, how much money they have, how much power they have, how great of a, you know, personal or social life they have. They can still be anxious. So often the cause of anxiety is unclear. The good news is it doesn't matter why somebody's anxious, you know, and often, you know, if there's something in our past, often people who've had a, a traumatic childhood or a, or a rough upbringing or something like that, those can be contributing factors, but the past is not the present. And so even if something in the past has set up the conditions for us to be anxious, we can't change the past. And so if we focus on trying to, trying to figure out what it was in our past that caused this, we're actually wasting our energy because we could be devoting that energy to working in the present moment with the anxiety itself. And so here I would say, instead of trying to figure out why we're anxious, instead of the why, we can focus on the what. What am I feeling right now? And if we can learn to open to that anxiety, almost befriend it, you know, it's unpleasant, but I don't have to be scared of it. That's when we actually gain quite a bit of mastery because one, we don't have to figure out all the causes, right? Sometimes it's helpful to know it. Great. Now I know that, but it's in the past, you know, maybe it helps us, uh, Reconcile with the past or let go of the past certainly helpful. But it's really about the what? What's happening right now? And how can I learn to be with unpleasant experience? It helps us develop what's described as distress tolerance. So unpleasant things are going to happen. Anxiety is just one of them. <laughs> we can again, you know, the object or the obstacle becomes away. We can learn, oh, Anxiety is unpleasant. I can be with this. doesn't matter why it's here, but the what is it doesn't feel pleasant and I can be with that. Now suddenly it opens us up and gives us so much more power over being able to work with other unpleasant things. So it's, yeah, it's really not, it's really not about trying to figure out how to solve whatever it was that caused it. It's about learning to be with it right now.
1: Judd, I think that's the perfect place to, to land the plane here and, and perhaps we, we leave room for part two. I know you have The Hunger Habit, your new book, out. Is it early next year? Early 2024? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so perhaps we, we leave some room and then we can come back and kind of dedicate an episode to that book and uh, habits related to, to overeating. This has been incredible. Uh, I've learned a lot. I know the listeners will too, and and we all really, really appreciate it. Um, the work that you're doing the research and, and getting out there and, and communicating it. I know it's going to help a lot of people. If someone wants to um, connect with you online, um, learn about the books that you have, the online programs that you have, et cetera, where can we send them?
0: Uh, I've got a website, just drjud.com, drjud.com, that uh, lists all of our, you know, my books our our apps. Um, we've got a bunch of free resources I also have a YouTube channel, the Dr. Judd YouTube channel, and then, um, Instagram, I think it's, uh, at Dr. Dr. Period Judd. So those are a couple of places, but I think the website's the easiest one.
1: Perfect. We will, uh, make sure to put all of that into the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. There you have it friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.